Well, last week we looked at uh, Mary and her many fantastic qualities. Uh, humble woman, honest woman, uh, bond slave of the Lord, constantly serving God, uh, submissive to Scripture. And this week looks a little different than Mary. Not that Mary was without sin. She was. There's not a lot of hoopla in the Bible about her sin, but uh, nowhere does it say she was guiltless. She was righteous. And this week we have Rahab. Uh, Rahab was a sinner for sure. The, just defining her as a prostitute tells us that. Um, but we'll talk a little bit about what her qualities were both good and bad. Um, But the main thing is that she is one of God's women of extraordinary works of faith. Not just faith, but you see her works in her faith. Uh, Faith without works is dead. That's what James says, the half-brother of Jesus. Kind of a radical idea. And why would it be radical? Well, doesn't it say in Romans that Uh, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Well, I don't think that the two statements oppose each other. Faith by works is dead. Says you need to have works to see your faith. And yet Romans is saying you don't need works. You just need the faith. But there's details, devils in the details. Um, What does Romans say? It says that faith apart from the works of the law. So it's not just about works. It's about works of the law. So if you're depending on how well you can be obedient to the law, then you're missing the point about faith. But nonetheless, there is a faith that is evidence, or or there are works that are evidence of our faith. And that's what we're going to see in Rahab. In fact, um, James uses two examples from the Old Testament to back up his claim that faith without works is dead. He mentions uh, in verse 21 of chapter 2, Abraham. And you can go there and look to see what he claims about Abraham. But then in verse 25, he says, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So we're going to look at this narrative, Joshua 2, to see Rahab's works, the evidence of her faith. But first, let's pray. Lord God, you amaze me constantly how personal you are to each of us. Lord, for years I have always been nervous in front of crowds. I stutter, I stammer, I search for words. But Lord, I ask you to take over, take over my words, my tongue. Let them not speak error. Let not the hearers hear error. Lord, I only want your spirit to well up in me and produce the words that can properly convey the message you have for us in Rahab. Continue to be that great, magnificent, sovereign, sovereign over even a silly vessel like myself, and be glorified in it. In the name of Jesus, amen.
an overview, a way of saying what we're going to look at, the entirety of Joshua 2, can be summed up in eight words. Rahab hides spies, realizes conversion, and arranges escapes. That's the summary of what's going to be a lot more words than that. And the aim that I hope to properly bring to you is that our works are evidenced by, of our faith. Our works are evidence of our faith. Okay? The works aren't saving us, but they're letting everybody know that we do have faith, including ourselves. And we learn a lot about Rahab in this passage. Um, and as I said, much of it is not what you would expect to find in one of God's examples for his people. In the first half a dozen verses, we learn that Rahab is a Canaanite, the people that are out to be destroyed. Uh, she's a prostitute. She's sneaky. And she's a liar. She's also an astute historian of, the, uh, of Israel and recognizes the Lord for who he is. We also see Rahab's courage and commitment. To get a perspective of how highly God esteems Rahab, realize that she's referred to in no less than four places in the Bible. Outside of Joshua, which he appears there twice, Joshua 2 and Joshua 6, she's mentioned by Matthew 1.5 in the lineage of Jesus. Rahab is in the lineage of Jesus. It's pretty high esteem just in that. Hebrews 11.31 She's recognized as part of what's referred to as the, the Hall of Faith. And by James in 2.25, as I was mentioning earlier. So we're going to read Joshua 2. It's, it's kind of a long one, probably take about four minutes. So if you're able to stand, please do so out of reverence of the Lord and his word. And we'll read this Joshua 2. And if standing is... Even halfway through this becomes a problem. No worries. Go ahead and sit down. I've got to find just the right light here. This was hard earlier. Joshua 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan, as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to the men, came up to them on the roof. And she said to the men, 
I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. All the inhabitants, or and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to, and the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go on your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of ours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. And we shall be guiltless. But if a, man, if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all the, along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. It's the word of the Lord. Go ahead and make yourself comfortable. So this is the narrative, the, the literary style of the book. <clears throat> and it's a narrative that's full of suspense and danger, both for the lie or the spies, well, the liar too, the, the spies and for Rahab. Uh, the, the villain. I guess he'd be the king of Jericho and also the rest of the Canaanites. The central character, though, the one who is in total charge and is sitting as judge, is God himself. He doesn't get much mentioned in here, but you can see his hand on everything throughout the story. 
And let's just get rolling. Verse 1, it introduces the spies into Jericho who board at Rahab's family lodge. Rahab, we are told, is a prostitute. And that's not the most righteous of professions. I've got about four more pages, so I'm going to flip through them because Scotty already took care of all the <laughs> sinfulness. of. That's, that's not true at all. Um, I, I do. Thank you. That, that, that does help this story a lot. Um, but there's no mention that these spies were employing her services. Uh, they were just lodging at her family's place. And I think it's interesting that God would use Rahab, a prostitute, for his plan. The spies were sent from Shittim, which is where uh, Joshua, the son of Nun, is camping. And, you know, there's, a, there's another saint in Numbers 25 that's also in Shittim, also dealing with prostitutes. And God dealt very harshly with the Hebrews, or the Hebrew men, in that scene. And verse 1, it's because they were whoring with the daughters of Moab. And then jumping all the way to the end of the little narrative of verse 9 of that same Numbers 25 is, those who died of the plague were 24,000. So God was judging Israel for whoring with these prostitutes of Moab. And the, that story is really incredible. Even under the accusation, the process didn't stop until, I think it was Phineas, took a spear and put it right through one of the prostitutes and the man that was with her all in one blow so you could kind of understand what that scene was doing. Um, and that very act of faith and works is what stopped God from slaughtering so many of the Hebrews. But still, it was 24,000 were put to death that day. So here using a prostitute and the spies, I wonder, was this some sort of test on the spies' behavior? I mean, we had earlier spies that didn't bring a positive report back to um, Moses. Thank you. <laughs> Big character. How do you drop his name? Um, and uh, it, it basically was the reason that Israel was stuck in the desert. Nobody was going to enter Canaan except for a couple of quality spies. But our heroes, you know, Rahab on the one side and, and the spies on the other, our heroes, the spies, I think it would be considered out of character to think that they had anything to do with uh, Rahab's profession, that they employed her for that, that it was only lodging. And you'll see more about them as the story continues, and, and you will see the strong character that they have. Um, and there's also no clue that Rahab was trying to solicit them. She was just providing lodging. So verses 2 and 3, the king finds out that the spies entered Jericho, and obviously he suspects that Rahab uh, knows their whereabouts. He went to her to ask, where are they? So he, he must have been told it was in her house that whoever did see these spies, that's where it, they were seen. And we can assume that Rahab had a thriving business with plenty of visitors, um, nefarious visitors, and somebody must have seen those spies asking questions and ratted them out. You know, ratted them out to the king, and then the whole scene where the king comes in and says, hey, Rahab, where are they? 
And verses 4 through 7 then brings us a second seemingly unrighteous characteristic of Rahab, second to being a prostitute. She lies to the king. She's a liar. She hides the spies on the roof, knowing, knowingly breaking a law punishable by death. So she's a liar and a civil lawbreaker. But we don't see any punishment by God. And it begs the question, is there a time when lying and disobedience to authority is okay with God? Seems like it is here. And I won't go into an, exhaust, an exhaustive study on what the Bible teaches about lying, but I do think we, we need to devote a couple of minutes to it. Again, if you want to go even deeper, uh, there is plenty to be looking at. So this is a very high surface look. The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. False testimony is lying. And God commands us not to do it. So it's clear that it's on the wrong side of sin. Yet Exodus 1, 15 through 20 is a story about the midwives who were ordered to kill the baby boys. And they came up when the Pharaoh said, hey, how come you're not killing the boys? They said, listen, these Hebrew women, they're so strong. They're having these babies before we even get there. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, it, we don't have the opportunity to kill them. It was a clear lie. They were covering uh, for what they knew was an injustice. And verse 20 of that story says, so God dealt well with the midwives. Not only does he not have a problem with that lie, he is blessing the women who were lying. Hmm, wonder what that's about. In Acts 5, though, we have an example of just the opposite. Ananias and Sapphira lied to Peter about their tithe, and God struck them down on the spot immediately. Severe punishment for lying. So that's the other end of the spectrum. So we have this one where God is blessing the midwives and yet putting to death the two people lying about their tithe. And there's a whole slew of lies that are between those two extremes. And we could find that God neither condemns nor condones, but does allow with no record of punishment. Genesis 12, 11 through 12. Abraham, or Abram, lies to the Egyptians out of fear of being killed over his wife's beauty. So he says to them that his wife is actually his sister. And it creates all kinds of problems, but there is no condemnation to Abram for doing it. It doesn't seem to be. And uh, David in 1 Samuel 21, 1 and 2, he lies to the priest of the temple saying Saul had sent him on an urgent mission and he needs that sacred bread. It was a lie. He was starving and his men were starving. So he took the bread to satisfy that hunger. And Jesus even refers to this incident, but he doesn't refer to it as a condemnation over the lie. It was more a lesson about how sacred is the bread, not a lesson about lying. So what conclusion might we draw? And, I, and I, again, we could go on and on about how many of these ones are in the middle. But I think a clue is in Proverbs eleven eighteen. It says, the wicked earns deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. Like other sins, God's going to look at the heart of the sinner. 
What are the motives for lying? Are the motives righteous? If so, God might allow it. I'll tell you what, though. I don't want to live on a maybe. I don't want to live on might allow it. I think it is the wisest thing to do to avoid the lie altogether and just rest on the truth, especially when the truth is the big truth about Christ. So Sarah was put in a tough place. As we shall see, Sarah feared the God of Israel and chose to lie to protect the spies from the people that God had judged. These first six, seven verses are Rahab acting out of fear of the Lord, her reverence of the Lord. But starting in verse 8, she begins her dialogue with the Jewish spies. It starts out with, I know the Lord has given you the land. Oh, wait a second. How does she know that? She doesn't say the Lord is going to give you the land. I believe the Lord probably is going to side for you guys. She said he has given you the land. It's a statement of confidence in the Lord. It is faith in the Lord. And with Rahab, it's not a blind faith, as it's true with our own, for it is a faith evidenced by the Spirit and the Word. For Rahab, I believe she had the Spirit, and she was in the middle of the Word being written. She cites in 10 and 11 the historical accounts of Israel that, that lead her to confess what she says in verse 11. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She has given the spies what they came for. They now have the vital information to bring back to Joshua that the fear of Israel has fallen upon the Canaanites, that the inhabitants of the land melt away from you or melt away before you. And that's repeated in what the spies actually tell them, tell to Joshua in verse 24. And also, I think we're those words, wrong page. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So the very words that Rahab gives the spies are quoted to Joshua, believed. And this brings us to the next act of faith by Rahab in verses 12 and 13. She makes her appeal for salvation. And not just for herself, but her family, all her father's house. That they may be the greatest, that just might be the greatest work of faith a believer can do. That being the quest for the salvation of others. It's even a commandment to us. Spending effort on the lost when their conversion is not something we have any control of is putting your trust in the Lord in the heavens above and in the earth beneath. Same God. Rahab's plea for salvation is from the destruction that God has planned for the inhabitants of the land he has given to Israel. And we see that in Deuteronomy 20, 16 to 17. I'm going to turn there and read it. You may, if you choose, Deuteronomy's book right before Joshua. So it's just a few pages back. Chapter 20, verse 16. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, 
You shall save alive, save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, all as the Lord your God has commanded. I have a brother-in-law who always reads that with all those ites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and those pesky mosquito bites. <laughs> Thank you, Chrissy. And in verse 14, back to our Joshua passage, uh, the spies swear an oath uh, that Rahab would remain faithful to protecting them, or if, if Rahab does that, then they will be faithful to her request. And I'll let you hold on to this tension that's just been created. They just agreed to something contrary to what God commanded. Total destruction. Seemed odd to me when I was reading it. Do they have the authority to do that? God said, let nothing remain alive. Nothing that breathes remain alive. And yet, somehow they think this is okay. This is probably the spirit working in the spies, just as the spirit was working in Rahab, that God is the guy controlling the whole narrative. Okay, And it is apparently okay with God for her salvation. But there's got to be conditions. Verse 15 begins another physical act derived from Rahab's faith. Physical act derived from faith, a work. She took part in the escape of the spies. Wasn't just talking about it. She's into action now. Just letting them down through the window would not be a complete assistance to the spies. There was more. Rahab had more information and needed to pass it over to them. Remember that when Rahab suggested to the king to pursue, to pursue the spies immediately through the gate, that's, that's a key bit of information that these spies need. And they weren't present to hear it. They were up on the roof. Probably didn't hear that happen. Might, might have. Might have had an ear to the floor. And I don't know what those floors were made of. She was also privy to the local territory. And she was able to advise them of the way to avoid the pursuers. She knew the pursuers would go all the way to the Jordan, to the fords. So go hide up in those hills. Wait three days. By then they'll probably be back. And then you'll be able to walk through in safety. We have to give credit to Rahab for being a skilled tactician. Or oh, wait a second, do we really? We have to give credit to Rahab for being very present to God's leading her. I don't think she was a great skilled trans, uh, tactician. I don't think she was a great liar. I, she might have been a great prostitute, I don't know. But... <laughs> God was leading the parts about God's leading Rahab in what she's doing. There we go. That's my out. God's leading Rahab in what she's doing now and forward. I don't think she's a prostitute anymore, by the way. That was her. That was a way to say, you know, it's that Rahab, the prostitute Rahab, even if she's done with that profession, you know, that Caleb the musician, he may be known for that the rest of his life. His arms get chopped off, he can't play the guitar anymore, and he'll still be the musician. You know, it's just something that a, a tag will go with you, and it's the best way to know who that Caleb guy was. 
So moving on, just like in verse 9, being supported in greater detail by verses 10 and 11, we see the oath of verse 14 is supported and elaborated on by verses 17 through 21. And this time with details on the salvation plan. So they said they would protect her, but this is how they're going to protect her. And central to that plan is tying a scarlet cord in the window that they have been passed through. Rahab does tie a scarlet cord in the window. And I'll comment about that a little bit more in just a few minutes. But first, let's follow the narrative in a very brief summary that will get us all the way to chapter 6 and the conquest of Jericho. Verses 22 and 20 through 24 is like I said, the spies did wait for the men to the pursuers to return through the gates, and then they came down from the hills, crossed the Jordan, and reported to Joshua. I think it said they crossed over or passed over. They were talking about the River Jordan. And I, I read one commentary that said where they crossed over, which they could swim, but later the army would have to come back, was perhaps as deep as 180 feet. I don't know how they find those things out, but it, it was more than you, you couldn't just wade across. You, you had to deal with swimming, and you can't send an army swimming across the Jordan. Uh, it's going to take something a little bit different. And chapters 3 and 4 are just that. It's a story about Israel crossing the Jordan, led by the ark, led by God, with another water-stopping miracle. And I'll let you read those to find out that, what that miracle is. And then chapter 5 includes Israel's men being dedicated to God with a circumcision. And they have their first Passover celebration, and on the next day ate from the land and no longer needed manna. So once they crossed into the promised land, the manna wasn't necessary, stopped coming, and they're eating from the abundance of the land. Also a, a neat little part of chapter 5 is this little narrative on the commander of the Lord's army, an angel, confronts Joshua. So there's some exciting stuff to read in those, and I, I would suggest you do. But then comes chapter 6, and it's the actual taking of Jericho. The elaborate march and the trumpet sound and the walls come crumbling down. Um, it, it's pretty cool. And, and verse 21 of chapter 6 is about the total destruction Joshua was, was assigned to do by God. So he's being faithful. He's pulling off works by his faith. So let's slow it down there and look at a few specific verses. Chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. And then 22 through 25. And I'll, I'll just read uh, exactly that. 16 and 17, then I'll jump down to 22. And at the seventh time, this is the march around the city, and at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who were with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. I'm jumping down to 22. But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went to 
or went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Rahab was loyal in action to everything she promised, as were the spies, as was Joshua. Rahab's father's household, all her family were saved. And Rahab is specifically mentioned as lived in Israel to this day. And I think that's just another way of saying she was converted to Judaism, an adopted daughter of Yahweh. And like I mentioned earlier, is included in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Amazing. Why would Rahab give so much biblical mention for what seems like a small thing in the grand scheme of things? Many biblical stories, far more involved, far more complex, aren't recorded with such enormity in the Bible. But this one is. Why? Well, for one, are there any really small things when it comes to faith? Because this is a story of faith and the things she does. Can we look at any of the works done, any of the services to God, and say that one's greater and that one's smaller? And I don't think we can. Matthew 25 and the parable of the talents tells us that there, there really aren't any small things when it comes to faith. Verse 21, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. No thing is too small when it comes to faith. Secondly, Rahab was involved in the progression of Israel becoming the Genesis 12 promise of making Abram a great nation. Rahab's a, just a fantastic model for those of us today that are saved by faith. We too are adopted by faith. For us, it's in the saving blood of Christ. We too are to do works that evidence our faith. We too are to trust in the Lord at times of peril. And peril takes many forms, physical and more, the more common form, spiritual. Spiritual peril is more common than physical peril, or more significant, I should probably say. And does that sound a little backward in your prayer life? Is that the way you're praying? Are you praying for physical things more than spiritual things, or spiritual more than physical? And I do think they both belong just I think spiritual should have the bigger lion's share. When I pray for something physical, I want to have the spiritual in mind. What is this for you, Lord? How can I glorify you in this, Lord? The enemy, he'd love to distract you from worship by focusing you on the physical. I say we can do more by praying for the spiritual health 
of the Swanson family. And then if we get around to it, we could pray about Tim's health. Think about that for a minute. Why are we praying for Tim's physical health? Because spiritual, he, spiritually, we believe he has a lot to offer. And we don't just pray spiritually about what he can offer to our spiritual health. We pray what he can go through in this that offers something to his spiritual health. And then we pray, pray for his family that what is offered in his spiritual health is then passed down through to his family's spiritual health. Back to Rahab. Rahab's also a great model to us when it comes to action in faith or works. James User is his example when making that argument that faith will produce works. 1 Timothy 3, chapter 3, talks of the qualifications of an overseer in the church. And in verse 13, specifically about deacons, he mentions the gains of service. And, and I'll read it, and, and it, I say it doesn't belong only to deacons. I mean, it does in the context but the, the greater thing is really this is for all of us. And it says, for those who serve well as deacons, I say all the church, gain a, a good standing for themselves. All right. And then the main thing, and also a great confidence in the faith that is Jesus Christ. So our works, once we've already, it's, it's a tricky thing. Once we've already received the faith, we have the faith, then we start producing works, and then those works start producing faith. So it's, it's growing. It's part of that sanctification process that works are a necessary part of it. You have to respond to what you're being told to do. And without the response, then we can start questioning, where is the faith? And I promised earlier to, to bring up that scarlet cord uh, that was to be presented in the window. And what's been revealed to me is not exclusive to Joshua 2, that you have to read more than that, but it's, it's in those first half a dozen Joshua chapters, which is the more full story of the conquest of Canaan um, by Joshua and the involvement of Rahab. Uh, and what I see is a, is a miniature representation of Exodus. Uh, in Egypt, Israel is instructed to mark their doorposts with blood, and the angel of death would pass over those households. So those that had the mark of blood, they weren't put to death. I think that's also seen by this scarlet cord, scarlet being red, red being blood, on the window. It's, it's an image of this Passover. And it was their intending to have Joshua pass over this house, house and not destruct its inhabitants. Israel left Egypt through separated waters of the Red Sea. The miracle that separated the Red Sea, Moses goes through it with all of Israel. When the army tries to go through, the sea closes on them. Fantastic miracle that let them escape. This miracle is the Jordan being stopped up, and if that 180 feet is anywhere near accurate, and I don't care if it's 15 feet, 
You would have to swim across it. You're not going to swim an army across it. But Joshua commands the priest to bring the ark to the water, and miraculously that water is stopped up upstream, and downstream it flows away, and the army passes through on dry land. Again, that one's not hard to understand. Yet another passing through waters miracle, comparing the two. And the Passover was celebrated upon Israel arriving in Canaan, as it was ordered to be celebrated when Israel left Egypt. So this Passover is very important to God, and it, it's shown in both places. Look at what I'm doing for you, Israel, when this Passover, you're my chosen people, and that's how I'm getting you out of Egypt, and you better honor that as you're coming into the promised land. Which, by the way, give Joshua a lot of credit. He's recognizing all these things, and he is one of the really righteous heroes of the Bible. And then the provided manna that sustained Israel in the wilderness. Here, Israel ate from the land, and the manna was no longer provided, as though God is just closing the doors on the wilderness narrative. And I think all this is just God showing his establishment of Israel to the land, or to the way of the land he intended. So he's finding Israel obedient, all those people who weren't trusting in God uh, that were punished uh, by the wilderness march and none of them entered the promised land. Now it's their heirs that are entering. And Joshua is going to make sure they're entering the right way. And Rahab was a significant part of that happening. But as, as important as Rahab is to the story and to the sermon, uh, we cannot forget that God is at the center. He's the star of the story. The story of Rahab and the spies and this intriguingness it all is and exciting. I mean, it's, a, it's an adventure. You can make a movie about this one. In fact, I'm sure a lot of movies do have this theme embedded in them. No matter what, it's still about God. He's the central character. God's the one who decided to send the spies. And God's the one who decided they're going to go see this prostitute, this lowly person. God chooses who he chooses. And it's not random. He'll cho choose you for some assignment that you are specifically designed for, designed by him, and that's why he's choosing you. 1 Samuel 16, 7, For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I've been carrying for well over a year what I'm about to read to you thinking, it, it's, it's very impressive. And, and when I first read it, handed it to, uh, Tim handed it to me a long time ago. And I thought, boy, someday this is going to fit a sermon. And this is the day. It was written by uh, Marilyn Escher. She's one of our missionaries, um, Bible translator, if you recall. She's in Africa. And she writes this, and, and at the top it says, um, 
missionary translator Marilyn Escher's Dialogue with Heaven, titled, His Thoughts Are Not Our Thoughts. And keep in mind the choosing of Rahab and what her skill set was as I read this from Marilyn. When I was in junior high school, I was in despair because I got such poor grades in typing. And God returned to her, my child, had you been a whiz at typing, you might have gone into secretarial work instead of Bible translation. All I wanted you to have was enough typing skill to carefully type the Wolof letters into the computer. I was in despair because I was so skinny. My knees were knobby and I was not in doubt where women are supposed to be filled out. Had you been a ravishing beauty, some man might have coveted you for himself. And I would have, or I would not have had you and your time all to myself. In despair because my face was so oily, my child, I had in mind sending you to a very hot, dry country in Africa. If your skin had a tendency toward dryness, think how quickly you would age. Despair because I had to wear eyeglasses. And later in college, I discovered my eyes were too dry to tolerate contact lenses. I had in mind sending you to a people whom the wearing of eyeglasses is the status symbol and respected. Despair because I was such a perfectionist. I drove myself and others up a wall with it. My child, I made you a perfectionist. Bible translators have to be. But I taught you to exercise your perfectionism where it counted and to let lesser matters go. I was in despair because I was too sensitive. I made you sensitive because I wanted you to learn to be sensitive to others. Oh, the depths of God's wisdom and love. Marilyn Escher, January 20, 25th, 1985. Wow. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that feeds our soul, that instructs us, and most importantly, that reveals you to us through your spirit. We pray that we use Rahab, your woman of faith and works, as a model of the behavior you desire when we are pressed into service. Service to your church and your saints. As Rahab looked to save her loved ones, we pray to you, Lord Jesus, for the salvation of ours. You have given us commandments and have provided the strength in Christ to do them. You are pleased with those who serve you, and we are blessed to be counted among the assigned. We ask you to continue to change our hearts, making them better to work and produce fruit for the kingdom and the furtherance of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.